Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast, A Light Unto My Path. I am your host, Howard Sides, and we're, I hope, going to complete this uh, final portion of the study of uh, the true Christmas story and see uh, a little bit about the details of what actually happened, what really happened, um, how it happened, who was involved, and when they happened. Uh, that's basically what this is about. Now, uh, we have finished the first portion. There's two portions of it. Uh, the first portion was um, discussing Luke chapter 2's version of the story, uh, basically what I call Luke's story. And then the second part will be Matthew's story here in Matthew chapter 2, if you want to go ahead and turn there. Uh, that's where we'll be today, Matthew chapter 2. And I ended the last podcast with, with an important thought. And that, that's kind of what kind of led me to this whole thing. This, this is kind of what got me on all this thing. And it's about these wise men. And Luke's account of the story of the birth of Christ, we talked about it right at, right at the beginning of part one. Uh, in the beginning of Luke's book, Luke chapter 1, verse 1, he talks about how meticulously and, and confidently he wanted to be in, in getting the records right, getting the facts straight. Um, Luke was, uh, everything had to be just so. Uh, you just kind of get that concept with him that, that he was one of those that if something wasn't sitting straight, he'd go and straighten it up. You know, and I, I kind of have a little bit of that. Uh, some people have different terms for it, but as it is. Uh, he was a meticulous record keeper, but yet in his story, we never see anything of these wise men. And, and it makes you wonder what, what's going on. Why, why doesn't he mention them? And, and, we'll, and there's a pur- there is a reason there, there's a purpose and a reason for it. And we'll get into that today as we get in here. Now, uh, Matthew chapter two, and <clears throat> in what we're going to talk about today, it can be, um, divided into two portions here. Matthew's story can be divided into two portions. Uh, verses 1 down through verse 8, we'll talk about the wise men's journey, the wise men's journey. And then verses 9 down through 12, uh, we'll discuss the wise men's joy, the wise men's joy. So there's the journey, and then there's the joy. All right, so let's take up the first part here. Uh, we'll go, let's just go ahead and read it. That's 12 verses. It shouldn't take me that long. And then we'll come back and break it down. All right, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when ye have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. 
And when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. Okay, so <clears throat> let's look at this first section, the wise men's journey, verses 1 through 8, the wise men's journey. Now, the first part of that discusses uh, this public meeting with King Herod in verses 1 through 6. Now, verse uh, 1 through 2, 1 and 2, excuse me, it talks about the Magi's request. Let me get my notes straight here. <laughs> the Magi's request. Yeah. Okay, now it starts off in verse 1. And it says, now when Jesus was born. All right. There's no time given here. All it is merely stating is that Jesus' birth has taken place at some moment before this point. Now when Jesus was born. All right. And it says, there came wise men. Now we always assume that there were three of them. Although the Bible never gives a number, we're not told there are three anywhere in the Bible. But yet we see all these nativity scenes and it's got three wise men there. Where does that come from? It comes from that reference uh, towards the end of what we just read about the gifts that they presented, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We just automatically assume one king, one man, <laughs> as it is, uh, had one gift in each hand. So, what can we know of these wise men from what it says here? Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Judea, behold, there came wise men. Well, the first thing we can know is from the phrasing of the word men. That's plural. We know that there was at least two. Otherwise, it would have been a wise man. <laughs> it says wise men. Now, most likely, uh, and, and well, let, me, let me talk about it. I, I may have mentioned this before. Um, to you, those of you that don't know, I am a veteran. I served in the U.S. Army uh, back in the late 80s and uh, to the mid-90s uh, during uh, Desert Storm, Desert Shield, and that sort of thing. But I spent the majority of my time in Germany. I absolutely loved, still love, the country of Germany. I could not get enough of that place. The castles, um, just the natural scenery, the people uh, were so nice. Uh, I, I fell in love with that place. I mean, from day one. <laughs> yeah, the weather wasn't all that great. In the I was first um, stationed in a little town of Heidelberg. Heidelberg is in a valley down towards the south part of the country. Um, well, the, well, actually in the central part, really. Munich is more to the south, so I'll say it's in the central part. Of, and, and there's this huge castle there. I'm telling you, man, in the summertime, they would put flares on it and light it up. And it was kind of symbolic of uh, it would always get struck by lightning and knock one of the turrets down or blow it up or something. So, so they would light it up at night and you could ride up and down the Neckar River uh, in these tour boats and, and see those flares on it. And it was made of red sandstone, which is like a dark burgundy color. So when those flares were on it, the castle really did look like it was like on fire. It, it was fascinating. Um, but I had a unique opportunity uh, after I'd been there about two years, uh, they came to me and said, look, we need uh, someone to serve in the U.S. Embassy as a communications expert um, in Bonn, Germany. Now, at this time, it was still East and West Germany. And so, you know, it was a unique opportunity. And I was like, well, yeah, you know what? Okay, I'll, I'll go. 
So um, it was unique in the fact there were only two of us. So, you know, I got one other job and the other guy had been there for a while. He just kind of went around. But while I was there, I did take it upon myself uh, to travel around. I, I traveled all over the place. I, I mean, I went to France, went to England, uh, all over all over Germany several times, many of the countries, Russia and all them places. Uh, I, I just couldn't get enough of it. I love to travel. So, I mean, well, anyway, my point is I went to one place in Cologne, Germany. In Cologne, Germany, and you can you can look it up, you can Google it, and you can see what I'm talking about. And there's a there's a structure there called the Cologne Cathedral, the Cologne Cathedral. Now, being here in America, um, people just really can't respect uh, or understand, I guess you'd say, uh, the sheer massiveness. <laughs> I don't know another term for it. The sheer massiveness of some of these structures that were built over there, the Cologne Cathedral is by and far one one of the tallest structures. I mean, this thing goes so far up, you can bend your head all the way back and only be about halfway up this thing. I mean, really, that's exaggeration, but uh, it's impressive. But in the Cologne Cathedral, uh, they claim to have what is called uh, Der Dreikonig Shrine. Uh, Der Dreikonig Shrine. Now, breaking it down, uh, dry is the number three. In German, Koenig means king. Shrine is tomb. So, three kings tomb. The tomb of the three kings in English. Uh, and they claim that in this tomb, this sarcophagus as it is, is the remains of the three kings or three wise men. Now, you can Google that and look at this thing. I, I'm telling you what, it is an immaculate piece of artistry. It is basically uh, two sarcophagus on the bottom and one on the top. Uh, it's made out of wood, but it is completely covered in gold and silver. Uh, it has like over a thousand jewels and beads all around it. And it's got all these carvings of intricate uh, biblical stories all, all around it. Uh, crazy beautiful. I, I mean, you can look at it. It's right behind the, the main altar and it goes into the back of the church. So, I mean, it's right there. You can take pictures of it and everything. Incredibly fascinating. But um, here's an interesting fact for you, if you don't know this. The Christmas Carol, We Three Kings, originally it was titled Three Kings of Orient, was the very first Christmas Carol written in America. <laughs> How about that? There you go. I'll give you that for free. All right. So, uh Again, there's this reference to this number three that we're focusing on here. In Eastern Christianity, especially the Syriac churches, uh, the number of wise men is often given as 12. That's quite a jump from three, but it's given as 12. And some estimates that I've read put the number of wise men at 14 or even more, considering the treasure they were carrying, the security for that, the servants involved, and the family members, and etc. So, Think about that a minute. Now, it mentions wise men. It mentions three gifts that they had. But yet, when these people took off from a faraway point, wherever it was, we'll get to that in a little bit, um, and were coming to visit this king, they were going to bring gifts. That that was a uh, requirement, if you will. That, that was just a tradition. You didn't go see a royal member and not bring a gift for him, okay? This is just 
rude and unheard of. So, of course, they had that. Well, in the fact that they were carrying these valuables, they had to have some form of security. I mean, here you are out in the wide. It's not like they had a sheriff's department, a highway patrol, and uh, police all up and down the highway and all that. Oh, no, there were thieves and robbers everywhere. They had to have some form of security. Not only that, but many of them uh, took servants with them uh, and family members. So we have no idea. How that, I mean, this could have been a huge entourage. It could have been 100 people. We, we just don't know. But in fact, we do know there was at least two. We can nail that down for sure. <laughs> Referenced in the word men. Now, while the Bible never refers to them as anything other than wise, many people have given them this title of a king. Their title of kings is most likely linked to a prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 60, verses 1 through 6. And I'll read that. Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 6. And it says, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Lift up thine eyes round about, and see. All they gather themselves together, they come to thee. Thy sons shall come from far, and thy daughters shall be nursed at thy side. Then thou shalt see, and flow together, and thine heart shall fear and be enlarged, because the abundance of the sea shall be converted unto thee, the forces of the Gentiles shall come unto thee. The multitude of camels shall cover thee, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, all they from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense, and they shall show forth the praises of the Lord. So nowhere in the Bible we're told they're kings, but many think that that reference comes from that scripture. Okay, now, um, this group, as, as I said before, is sometimes called, uh, and I'll use that title, the Magi, M-A-G-I, the Magi. Well, where does that term come from, uh, and what does it mean? The history behind the name, it is starts all the way back in the book of Genesis, chapter 25. Genesis, chapter 25, uh, verses 1, 2, and 6. Genesis chapter 25, and I'll read that. It says, Then again Abraham took a wife. Now what's happened is Sarah has just died. Sarah has passed away. It's so verse 1 of chapter 25. Then again Abraham took a wife, and her name was Keturah. K-E-T-U-R-A-H. Keturah. And she bare him Zimran, and Jokshan, and Medan, and Midian and Ishbak, and Shua, but unto the son, and verse 6, but unto the sons of the concubines, which Abraham had, Abraham gave gifts and sent them away from Isaac his son, while he yet lived eastward unto the east country. Okay, now we're talking about a wife and a concubine here. Now, a lot of them argue that, well, Keturah wasn't really a wife, uh, or she was really a wife, she wasn't a concubine, so this doesn't I And mean, actually, in First Chronicles chapter 1, verse 32, it refers to Keturah, as Abraham's concubine. She was one of his concubines. Yes, he did later on marry her, but in reference to what's going on, it's talking about her sons and the other sons all being a separate division from Isaac. 
Okay, he took care of Isaac. But in verse 6, it says, Unto the sons of concubines, which Abraham had, Abraham gave gifts and sent them away from Isaac, his son. There's the separation. While he yet lived eastward unto the east country. So basically, he sent them to the east country. And what we're getting at here is one of these sons of Keturin, uh, one, two, three, the fourth one. His name is Midian, M-I-D-I-A-N. Uh, Midian's descendants moved into a section of this east country, which is later called Mead, M-E-D-E, -E, Mead. And Mead later on becomes half of the Medo-Persian Empire, Medo-Persian Empire. Now, historically speaking, the first uh, or, or the next stage of what happens after, after this incident is that the Babylonians take the slaves, uh, take slaves of the Israelites. When they come in and they took the land of Israel, uh, they made them all servants. And in the book of Daniel, we see where uh, Daniel makes an impression on King Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel becomes the leader uh, of the priesthood uh, there. Okay? Now, being the leader of the priesthood, it was more than obvious. Uh, you can just kind of grasp and understand this. In Babylon, they have men of science. They had men of renown. They had men of thinking and knowledge and that sort of thing. Do you not think it would have been foolish to ignore what Daniel and all these Israelites would have said about their prophecies and about what their uh, scriptures said? I very seriously doubt that. They would have learned everything they could. That's what their job was, a capacity for learning, and they wanted to learn it all. So in there somewhere, Daniel and uh, the people of Israel with him would have taught these Babylonians the, the prophecies out of the Old Testament. Okay? Now, the next event that happens is the, the next world power takes over. And that's where we mentioned them before, the Medo-Persians. The Medo-Persian Empire defeats the Babylonians, and then they took these Israelite uh, slaves to their territory upon which time they would have learned about the prophecies in the Old Testament records as well. All right. At some point later, uh, the Medes try to overtake the Persians and take sole control of the entire empire, but they fail. Now, one of the tribes in these Medes uh, was this group, uh, this offspring of Midian here. All right. Now, the name, uh, well, let's see, that kind of doesn't really, we'll kind of go in down to that. Okay, now, upon the failed attempt to overthrow the Persians, the, this specific tribe of Medes became priests, teachers, and instructors for the Persian kings. And it's obvious the Persian kings accepted it because they were held with such high esteem that it was decreed that no sacrifices could be made in the entire Persian empire without one of these priests being present. So the, these men were quite highly respected. Um, trying to make some notes here as I go. Uh, they were skilled in philosophy, medicine, astronomy. Astronomy is the study of the stars and natural science. And of course, they also believed in astrology. Astronomy, astrology. Astronomy is the study of the stars. Astrology is the worship of the stars. There is a vast, distinct difference. Astrology is, um, you know, that, that what's your sign? <laughs> Each of the months has a sign. Well, it's not actually down to a month, but there's like 12 different zodiac signs and what's your horoscope and all. That's a part of astrology. That's the worship 
of the stars. So if you dabble in that astrology and you just can't get your day made without a cup of coffee and reading what your horoscope says, give it up. I mean, how often is it really true? It's just a matter of circumstance, okay? <clears throat> and maybe Satan playing with you and trying to convince you. So that ought to scare you enough right there. If it, if it is right all the time. <laughs> now, this word magi is where we get our term today, magician. Although these magi were well-respected persons and not tricksters and pranksters like we uh, picture these magicians today. Uh, they weren't like that. They, they were well-respected men. Okay, so we'll give them that. All right, the next phrase, it says, from the east. Okay, everybody knows which way east is, okay? Uh, from Israel. If you have to, you can get a map of the Middle East. And that little dot on there is Israel. <laughs> All the way down along the coast there of uh, the Mediterranean Sea. You got Israel. And um, east of that. And you can see what's to the south. You can see what's to the north. And that, and that plays a role in, in kind of what we're going to look at here. So what is to the east in that day would have been known what is called the Parthian Empire. The Parthian Empire. And they were in power from 247 B.C., before Christ, uh, to 224 A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. The Parthian Empire. Now, this was an area that stretched from uh, parts of the Mediterranean Sea into the west to India and China in the east. I mean, so this was a vast chunk of land, as it were. I mean, they had quite a bit of uh, uh, territory. Uh, <clears throat> now, what this come about, remember Alexander the Great. When he died, he had four generals. Uh, one took over the area of Egypt and Libya and that sort of thing. Well, one of them took over this area uh of this Parthian Empire. And what's significant here about this Parthian Empire was that these people were well uh, known, well recognized as incredible archers. It was these people uh, who were the first to be able uh, to be deadly accurate with a bow and arrow uh, turned completely backwards on, on a horse in a full gallop. You ever try to do that? You see these... Uh, cowboy movies with the cowboys riding on these horses wide open riding and they got that rifle and they're cocking that thing pow you know and they're hitting all these little targets and stuff try that sometime let's see how steady of an arm you've got okay now you take what these guys were doing and they were turning around completely backwards on a horse <laughs> and it said that they were astoundingly accurate and it was from these that the offspring uh became the rule of uh Genghis Khan and he was known for this training or, or, or this, I don't know what you'd say, it uh, uh, characteristic. Uh, his men could do this. And it was, he was a bloodline from down in this Parthian Empire. Okay, so there's kind of how it ties all the history in together. All right, now, <clears throat> uh, it's believed to be from this area that these wise men originated from. Some say it was all the way from China. Some say from India. Uh, but, but but we'll get into that a little bit. But and, and that was kind of my next point. Some historians give three names to these wise men. Okay, if there's that question out there, and they're trying to, somebody's going to supply some names. That's just how it is. Uh, one of the names that we have uh, been given is uh, Melchior. M E L C H I O R. 
and he was considered to have come from Persia. If you don't know where Persia is, that is where today Iran is. Uh, and I can tell you right now, you call an Iranian an Arab, and he's probably going to be irate. <laughs> the Iranians do not call themselves Arabs. They are Persians. Distinct difference. Okay? That's just the pride of their history. That, that's what that is. Okay? So Melchior was from Persia. Uh, the second name we're given is the name Gaspar, G-A-S-P-A-R. And presumably he came from India. And then the third name we're given is uh, Balthazar, B-A-L-T-H-A-Z-A-R. And it is thought that he came from Arabia. And when I first uh, saw this, now again, there, there's nothing to argument argue that there were not three. Okay, there could have been three, but nowhere are we told there are three. These could have just been three guys that were smarter than their average neighbors. Now, who knows? Um, but when it says this guy, Balthazar, came from Arabia, uh, Arabia is more, not exactly, but it's more to the south than to the east. So I, I kind of, it doesn't really sit well with me. I, there could be an argument that, well, yeah, it is to the east, but, eh, you know. And here's another thing. Did they all three come from the same place or did they all three come from different regions? I really tend to think that it's possible that they all three came from different regions. Uh, that, that they were maybe within a certain group or a certain area, but possibly three different. Why? I mean, think about this from a historical aspect or, or, or a common sense. Why would three wise men, if it were three, all be located in the same place? Okay, some arguments for uh, learning and studying, gaining knowledge from each other's experience and knowledge. Okay, uh, who else could get benefit from that? Okay, there's a key. Uh, if you spread them out, knowledge is gained. And in that day and time, knowledge seemed to be a big deal. Not as much today. But back then, that was how records were passed. That's how records were kept. That's how arguments were settled. Uh, these smart guys, the wise men, they were the ones that were respected. So, you know, I really think they were from different areas. I, I don't know where from, but but I, I think there's enough common sense and enough suggestion, no evidence, but that, that they come Persia and India and maybe even from China. I don't know. Uh, there's no doubt that the Far East has some pretty smart people. So came from somewhere. <laughs> okay. All right. <clears throat> Next phrase. Uh says in verse 2, saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? <laughs> where is he that is born king of the Jews? Now, upon arrival, these diligent Gentiles, as they were, pagan Gentile men, they were wise, but they were pagan Gentiles, they start asking everyone, hey, where's this guy that's born king of the Jews? We, we want to worship him. Where's he at? And as they're asking this question, they look around, and all they're getting is blank stares. Nobody knows what they're talking about. And I wanted to point this out. If you will, flip over to Matthew chapter, I mean, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 2. We just finished that Luke story. And I want to remind you of what happened over there. <clears throat> Luke chapter 2. 
Here's the first thing, verse 10. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. There are the angels telling them that this is an open invitation. It's a message for all people. There's where your word all is. All people. And verse 17. And when they had seen it, talking about the shepherds, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. They told everybody. They made known abroad. They told everybody. Verse 18, and all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. People heard it, and they thought about it. Yet here, in verse 2, when they come and say, hey, where's this guy that's born king of the Jews? And all they're getting is blank stares. Nobody knows. Is that not fascinating? These shepherds told everybody. But all they got in response is people just thought about it. And listen, that, that is a signal or a sign, if you will, of things that are happening today. And I'm telling you, it's dangerous. People are given the message of Jesus Christ. And those that are hearing it, they think about it. And that's as far as they go. They think about it. And then Satan gets them busy. Satan gets them distracted. Satan gets them deterred. And they forget all about it. And that's exactly what we see happen right here. They thought about it. I mean, imagine hearing a story like that. Hey, God has been born a human and he's here. Would you not want to see that? <laughs> I would. And yet, nobody knows a thing. And you're thinking, man, was this like 100 years later? No. 50 years later? No. 10 years later? No, no, not even that long. Five years later? Not even that long. But we will get to it. So here they are, they're asking the question, they get nothing but blank stares. Man. And they ask this next question, for we have seen his star in the east. We have seen his star in the east. All right. Now, if you're anybody anywhere is well connected with the internet and the news and all that, um, this month, December of 2020, uh, there's a lot of talk about a Christmas star. A lot of talk about a Christmas star. And we'll kind of get into that. But but in this story here, uh, first of all, with this Christmas star, there's many assumptions that have been made uh, that these wise men followed a star for one night and arrived at their destination. Star pops up, boom, they're in the far east, wherever they are, and they follow this light. And sometime before the morning when the light disappeared, uh, they arrived at the manger scene. All right, well, there's two problems with that. Number one, uh, this star is going to move. Remember, the rotation of the Earth and the constellations. Yes, they may go from east to west, but if they saw the star in the east, by the time they got up and got good and ready, they couldn't have traveled very far before that thing went down. I mean, let's remember that um, Joseph and Mary traveled 80 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. That would have took longer than a day. Wherever these guys come from, had to be further than that, just from the assumption that they came from the east. Why wouldn't they have just come from the name of some city if it was close enough to make in a day or a night? And by that point, who would travel at night <laughs> with gold and frankincense and myrrh in your pocket? Come on. All right, second, many secular historically recorded stellar events of this time frame are suggested as, quote, natural events, unquote, 
for an explanation. When they see this story, they go looking for answers and they try and fit stuff in there. There have been some that have been produced. Number one would be the appearance of Halley's Comet, which appeared in 11 BC. Uh, I mentioned it a minute ago. Uh, This year is what we call that Christmas star, the conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter. Well, it happened back then in 7 BC, and it made like a bright light, okay? Uh, Another event happened between uh, the year 5 and 2 BC. Now, on the first day of the Egyptian month, Mesori, M-E-S-O-R-I, Mesori, the star that is called Sirius, which is also known as the dog star, uh, rose at sunrise and shone with a with an exceeding brilliance. Well, it had to be exceeding if it was seen during the day. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of obvious. Now, here's my question. How long was it shining? How long did it stay in the sky? Did it continually move? Uh, it's not said. The only key to that is they focus on the name Masori. Masori means birth of a prince. So when that thing come up and shine, I'm sure somebody would have thought, hey, there must have been a prince born somewhere. <laughs> okay? So <clears throat> there seems to be, though, no doubt that across this entire region, there was some sort of knowledge and or assumption that a great event was about to take place during this time that involved someone from the Judean region taking over the world. There were several people that wrote about it, but I have two of them that I found uh, amongst the others uh, that was in English. <laughs> okay, so, uh, but one of them is the Roman historian by the name of Suetonius. That's S-U-E-T-O-N-I-U-S. Suetonius, who wrote during the rule of Vespasian. Uh, and I quote, There had spread over all the Orient an old and established belief that it was fated at that time for men coming from Judea to rule the world. And he wrote that in his book, Life of Vespasian, in uh, Book 4, Section 5. In the Orient. Well, of course, we know today the Orient is the Far East. And when it says men coming from Judah, now that could have been just a misunderstanding of the translation or something instead of a man. Just simple enough. Now, another Roman historian uh, named Tacitus, T-A-C-I-T-U-S, wrote along the same lines. And he said, and I quote, there was a firm persuasion, firm persuasion, that at this very time, the East was to grow powerful and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire a universal empire. Unquote. Now, he wrote that in his book, Histories, uh, and it was quoted from Book 5, Section 13. So again, there was a firm persuasion. That means it wasn't some light-spoken assumption. This was something that people were really involved in. They were discussing this with some serious thought, a firm persuasion. So they knew something was going on. They just didn't know what. Um, let's see. All right, and next phrase, and are come to worship him. End of verse 2, and are come to worship him. Now, this is the first record of Gentiles worshiping Jesus. Now, why would Gentiles, and thus pagans, want to come and worship Jesus? 
I mean, think about it. They've got their own gods. Why do they want to come and worship a foreign god, as it were? Why someone else? Now, this falls back to the Magi being descendants of the Medes who took Israelite slaves from the Babylonians who, no doubt, learned of the biblical prophecies concerning Jesus. Now, uh, the timeline of, of prophecy of Daniel's vision, we're referring to Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 25. Um, hang on, make a note here so I can fix this, make it a little more understandable. So it's the timeline in the prophecy of Daniel's vision. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 25. Uh, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression. What's he talking about right there? We'll just explain that a little bit. What's happened is the nation of Israel has turned from God. And God says, I've told you in the book of De uh, Deuteronomy, if you did not follow me, I would let you fall into bondage and you're going to pay the price. And I've determined 70 weeks are what you're going to pay. That's what he's telling them. 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Okay, now verse 25. Now there, or know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublous times. So there's a timeline here. It says from the going forth of the commandment to restore to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince. Okay, so from the time the order is given to rebuild Jerusalem to the time that the Messiah appears will be a period of seven weeks and three score and two weeks. So there's your timeline, okay? Now, it begins with the time when Ezra and Nehemiah were allowed by the Persian king Artaxerxes. And if you don't know who that is, uh, it's in the book of Ezra and it's in the book of Nehemiah. But the king's name is A-R-T. A-X-E-R-X-E-S. If you can't say Artaxerxes, you say King Art. <laughs> For short. Uh, they were allowed by the Persian king, Artaxerxes, to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. Ezra chapter 9 verse 7 says, For upon the first day of the first month began he to go up from Babylon, and on the first day of the fifth month came he to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. Now we know by historical records that this took place in the exact year 445 B.C. There's your starting point. As Daniel said, from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem, that took place in 445 B.C. We have a starting point. And so would anybody who read that record or have heard that record and knew of what it was talking about. Now, by calculating out Daniel's 70 weeks, I'm not going to go into that. I'm telling you, that that's some uh, really deep stuff, okay? I'm, I'm just going to say there's 70 weeks, as recorded in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 and 27. These wise men could determine that the time was upon them for the coming of the Messiah. And, and you think, well, that was just... 
I just read where all those historians were writing, hey, they knew something was about to happen. All those people that had been exposed to the prophecies of the Bible knew that some Messiah was just about to come about on the scene. The timeline was right. It was it was ripe for whatever was supposed to happen. It was it was time for it. <clears throat> so apparently several of them knew what was going on. Okay. All right. I'm gonna tell you what, I'm gonna stop here uh on this section and we've got one more uh one more part. I'm 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 gonna brave it out. We'll knock it out in four parts. I really didn't think this thing would take this long. I really thought it'd be one lesson. <laughs> Should have known better. Uh, when you get into details, it takes time to get the details out or whatever. All right, so uh, uh, we're stopping with section three. And I'll uh, immediately go right into section four, so it's all on there for you. Don't want anybody to be held on too long. Uh, but I hope you've enjoyed this, and, and I hope you learned something. And, and again, I tell you, just like I, I've said always long, don't take my word for it. Read your Bible. If you've got a King James Bible, not a new King James Bible, not in, read your King James Bible. That's what I'm going off of. That's what I believe to be God's word. And I make the argument that if there's one God, if there is one son, if there is one Holy Spirit, if there's one plan of salvation, if there is one way, as Jesus said there is, then why in the world would you possibly think there could be more than one Bible? God made us one Bible in the English language and expects us to use it. We just can't be lazy and let all these other people tell us what to think. That's why we have the English Bible. Anyway, that, that's another argument for another time. So again, thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. I, I hope to uh, have you only with the next podcast. Uh, may God bless you. And I didn't say it on the last one. I'm, I'm sorry. Or last two. Uh, Merry Christmas. And I, and I hope you had a good holiday. In, in the midst of all this junk going on, the election, the coronavirus, and whatever else is out there, um, take time to thank God for sending us his only begotten son. He did it for you. He did it for me. But it's more important to you that he did it for you. I mean, it's important to me that he did it for me. And God did that. And we should thank him for that. All right. Thank you. And until next time, may God bless you.